Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Church, you may open your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This evening we'll be looking specifically at verses 14 to 22. A theme that has popped up in various forms the last couple of weeks is that of idolatry. That's going to be our focus for this evening. While pondering and reflecting on this text, it occurred to me that it's, it's actually been a while since I preached here at this particular service. The last time I was supposed to preach, other commitments came up and uh, Carsten faithfully took that slot. So it's been a couple of months. But on a positive note, in the interim, on my travels, I made a friend. I made a friend. Now this friend, he usually sits on my fridge at home. But I thought I'd bring him along tonight just as a means of illustration. I put his name up for vote in the office, and this is what they came up with. This isn't me. First name, Bob. Second name, Bert. And surname, if you are a church history fan, you'll enjoy this one. Surname, Augustine. Augustine of Hippo, or Augustine the Hippo. But I like Bert, so henceforth tonight he shall be known as Bert. Now, Bert is not an idol. Bert is not an idol. He's not an idol. I can see the newspaper heading tomorrow. Baptist intern brings idol into church. It, it didn't happen. It never happened. Bert is an innocent little hippo, a trinket. But I, I brought him along just to help us with some of our illustrations. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14 to 22. It reads as follows. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That the food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let us pray. 
Lord, this is your word. It was written long ago, and yet it is no less alive today. Minister to us, I pray. Encourage us, convict us, strengthen us. If it be that according to your world you would save souls tonight, do so, Lord. May your truth prevail, I pray. Amen. My first point, it comes straight out of the text. Flee. Flee. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, usually we wait till the end of the sermon for some sort of application. Today we start with it. Flee. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Therefore, now it's necessary for us to look back on Jabal's passage from last week. This command, this imperative, it is based on a truth expressed in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, as I've grown older, one of the truths about life that I've realized is that talk is cheap. It's easy to say things with our mouth. As children, you're encouraged to dream, and if you had asked me when I was young what I wanted to be when I grew up, from my mouth you would have heard anything from soccer player to pilot to Spider-Man. <laughs> but when you get a little bit older, you start caring less about the career itself, but rather the amount of money you're going to make. How you'll be a millionaire before you hit 30. But when 30 doesn't work out, you tell yourself that you'll have it worked out by 40. But when you get to 40, you realize you had more money when you were 30, and it's just, it's just a mess. It goes on. Christian, do you desire holiness? Do you desire to walk in the Spirit? Do you desire the likeness of Christ? Do you desire it? Now, Paul here is speaking specifically about worship. Do you desire to worship God in spirit and in purity and in truth? Do you desire your worship, your life? Do you desire it to rise up to God as a sweet-smelling fragrance? This is not some unattainable dream. Unlike your grand scheme for life, unlike the millions you'll likely never make, this is within our reach. Paul offers us this glorious truth. God is faithful. You who labor and toil and fight against sin, you who are heavy laden, you whose blood and sweat and tears never seem to be enough, you who fear that if you share the gospel with your friends, they will hate you. You who fear that if you draw the line and say no to worshiping idols with your family, 
you fear they will never speak to you again. Is this not the sweetest song you have ever heard? God is faithful. You who are in Christ, God's provision is not just past tense on the cross. No, it is present. God is faithful. Do not despair, my brothers. Do not despair, my sisters. God in his faithfulness provides a way out. Therefore, my beloved, therefore those whom I love and cherish, therefore family and friends, therefore Christian, if God has provided a way out, is there any other application of God's provision than to take it and flee? Take it and run. Now, I'm still waiting for the spider to bite me so I can turn into Spider-Man. The last time a spider bit me, I ended up in hospital. But Christian, the older I get, the more I look at the word, the more maturity that I trust God gives me, the more I realize that freedom from sin is not a baseless dream. The word of God says you will not be tempted beyond your ability if we are to believe this glorious truth, then the only logical conclusion is to take advantage of it. Flee, run away, run away and never return. There is no, there is nothing to be gained in idolatry. Run. Now these Corinthian Christians, first they wanted to know whether it was okay to to eat food offered to idols. Now in this passage, they want to know if it's okay for them to take part in the worship of idols. And this is their logic. If Bert, if Bert is dead, there's nothing in there. If Bert is dead, then what's all the fuss about? Paul already told us in chapter 8 verse 4 that idols have no real existence and there is no God but one. If he's dead, if he's just a piece of wood, what's the point of saying no? What's the point of causing conflict between friends and family over something that's not even real? Why can't we just go to that idol's temple during the week? We'll try our best not to touch the prostitutes. We'll be on our best behavior. And we promise we'll be back in church on Sunday. But Come on, Paul. Come on. Don't don't you understand our context? Don't you know that not too long ago, before you came along, before you came along and told us about Jesus, this is all we knew. This is all people did around here. Some would maybe say, I was raised in that temple. I've been there every week since I was born. Some might even say, I met my wife there. My parents go there. Now, Paul, we believe you. We, we believe you. We get it. Jesus reigns forever, and these idols are dead and meaningless. We believe you. Our faith is still in the right place. But grant us this. Let us humor our context. I don't want to stand out so much. Rather than going to the effort of being a light on the hill, can't I just climb up the nearest tree? Or better yet, why can't I just stay at home and shine my light through the window? Now, how does Paul respond? I speak to sensible people. 
You want to be smart? Let's put that head of yours to good use. Judge for yourselves what I say. My second point, look at the implications of worship. Firstly, the implications of what it means to worship God. Verse 15 to 18, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. It is fitting that we find ourselves in this passage on a night where where we will be celebrating communion. This is exactly what Paul is referring to. You guys are logical, right? What do you think it means when we drink of that cup? What do you think it means when we break bread? Is it not participation? Is it not that we participate in the blood and the body of Christ himself? Is it not acknowledging and remembering that 2,000 years ago, Jesus on that cross died? his body broken, his blood spilled for you and for me. He died that we may live, that we might participate. That we who are once separate from God may be adopted as sons and daughters of God, that we might live lives that glorify God, that we would be his salt and light unto a broken world, is it not that even as we participate in Christ, we, we who barely know each other from above soap, even as we participate in Christ, we become one? Is this not our source of kingsmanship? Is this not what unites us? Think logically the implications of taking part in worshiping God through the Lord's Supper. You see... It is obvious to us how it isn't just some wonky ceremony that someone imagined. This is a sacred rite. It is a sacred ordinance. This is our means not just to remembering Jesus once a month. It is our means to proclaiming the Lord's death as often as we meet. With a faith and an expectation that every day that passes is a day closer to his glorious return. It is an allegiance a proclamation. This is the God that we worship. This is the body that we serve. Therefore, I will live my life as a living sacrifice. Therefore, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Therefore, again, think logically. If you come together on a Sunday and you break the bread and you drink the cup, if that means something if that is a holy participation in something much greater than yourself, what makes you think that going into the temple of an idol and participating in worship there, what makes you think that means nothing? If the cross means something, then this means something. So my second point, 2.2, the implications of worshiping idols. 
verse 19 to 20. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans offer to idols, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants in demons. So what's the implication of worshiping idols? Paul repeats himself. The food, the sacrifice, the idols themselves, they are dead and meaningless. There's nothing in there. But by participating in the worship of dead idols, you are participating in demons and not in Christ. Now what does this mean? Does this mean that as they gathered around Bert, that his eyes lit up and glowed red and if they listened closely, they could hear some chanting. And Perhaps not. I don't think that's what Paul was getting at. His concern here is not the nature of demons. It is not the quantity of demons in these idols. It is not the names of the demons. It is not some sort of deliverance ministry. Paul's point here is participation. Participation. If you participate in the worship of a living God, that means something. You are lifting up the glory of God. You are participating in his glorious work here on earth. You are aligning yourself with God and his people. Therefore, if you participate in the worship of that which is dead, it also means something. If you're not lifting up the glory of God, what do you think you are doing? Are you not stealing from it? Who do you think gains from that? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Participating in idol worship, it is not made evil and demonic by the size of the idol, nor is it the quantity of the idols, nor is it whether or not the idol is dead or alive. We already know the idol is dead. It is evil and it is demonic because all worship belongs to God and so all worship that is not of God is evil. Think logically about this. God is God. He is creator. He is utterly and completely distinct from his creation. He is holy. He is infinite. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is loving. He is gracious. He is just. He is righteous. He is these things and he is the perfection of these things. He is glorious. He is infinitely beautiful and great. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of all of our praise. He is worthy of all, glonor, of all glory and honor and power. You cannot serve two masters. You are either for him or you are against him. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. 
to a silent stone arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. 2.3, the impossibility of neutral worship. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord, verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You cannot. It is an emphatic impossibility for these two things to coexist. You cannot worship God and idols at the same time. Now, is Paul saying it's physically impossible to be at one on Sunday and another on Tuesday? No, that's not his point. He's not talking about schedule. He's not talking about showing up for worship. What he is saying is that it is a fruitless exercise. There is no middle ground to stand on. Either you worship God or you don't. There is no neutral space where you can stand. Excuse me. There is no neutral space where you can hold the living God and but intention. God is an all or nothing God. Either you worship him with all that you have or you worship him with nothing. There is no form of worshiping the living God that can include the worship of an idol. My third and my last point, the insanity of idol worship. Verse 22, shall we provoke the Lord to anger? Are we stronger than he? Use your heads. Be sensible about it. If there is no middle ground, if you'll agree with me that the implications of participating in in idolatry are an abomination to God, let's think this through. Now, Bert here, he's wooden and he's dead. We already agreed on that. What you don't know is that old age comes even for Bert. Bert used to to have teeth, but uh, he fell and the teeth fell out. If you poke him, if you poke him, you'll find that one of his legs is shorter than the rest. And soon enough, either he will rot and decompose, or he'll be thrown into a fire and used as firewood, and Bert will be no more. God, God is not Bert. God is not dead. God is not toothless. God doesn't have one leg that's shorter than the rest. If you poke God, if you provoke him to anger, if you make light of your worship of the one true God, and you go and you bow before other gods, God will show his teeth. He will bite back just a few verses ago. Don't you know that a few thousand years ago, 23,000 Israelites dropped in one day? Who do you think you are? Do you, do you really think, are you insane enough to think that you are stronger than God? 
That is crazy talk. (laughs) Think about what the world tells us. The world tells us that if you're not getting enough attention from your boyfriend or your girlfriend, if they're not putting enough effort into the relationship, just provoke them to some jealousy and that will spark them back to life. Let them catch you talking to someone else and that will show them they are replaceable and then that will spark them back to life. Think about God. Do you think you need to spark God back to life? Is the love he has shown you not enough? And by enough, what I really mean is, can you even comprehend it? Have you found the bounds of his love? Are you not satisfied that even while you were a sinner, God demonstrated his love to you by sending his son? Do you think there is something to be gained by making God jealous? Don't play games with God. Don't play games with your worship towards God. There is nothing, there is nothing to be gained from idolatry. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Now in conclusion, a a few closing remarks. Firstly, unbeliever. Unbeliever, you who partake in idol worship, you who do it freely and willingly and you, and you have convinced yourself that these things are real and they are worth your time and they are worth your worship, whether it is a Muslim God, whether it is Buddha or ancestors or Mother Nature, Mother Earth or some traditional religion, maybe you worship yourself. Maybe you think you are the center of the universe and the evil of your own heart, you have fashioned yourself to be an idol. Everything and everyone just exists to make your life better. Maybe you worship money. Your entire existence just revolves around getting more money. That's why you wake up in the morning. Maybe you worship Bert. It feels right. Your parents worshipped him. Maybe your grandparents worshipped him. Your ancestors, as far back as you can tell, they were worshipping Bert. This was their God. Now let's think about this. Let's think about this. Let's be logical. Do you think if underneath your idol it was written, made in Africa, do you think it makes it any more alive? or made in China, or Asia, or America, or Europe? Do you think that contributes to whether this is dead or alive? Do you think if your father's name was written underneath this, do you think if your father made this, do you think that makes it more alive? Even the money you worship, even the money, if you turn it over, has a date when it was made and the country it was made for. What happens if you turn over the Christian God? You'll find he has no date. In the beginning, he was there. Before the beginning, he was there. The beginning only became the beginning because he willed it to begin. 
Our God is not the God of a single people or nation. He owes no one his allegiance. He is the God of all nations. Every tongue shall confess, every knee will bow. Unbeliever, unbeliever, I beg of you, flee idolatry. There is only one who is worthy to be praised, and he was not fashioned by human hands or hearts. He is God. He is God. Contrary to common belief, our Christian God was not imagined up in Europe by a bunch of white people. The cross, the wooden cross, it might have been fashioned from a tree by a bunch of Romans, but you'll find it was the living God who willed that tree to grow, knowing his son would die on it. The cross itself might have been wooden, but here's the important part. The person hanging on the cross was not. He was a living sacrifice, a sacrifice not made by human hands, but one fashioned in heaven by the will of the Father. An atonement for sin that proclaims the love of God and freedom for all who would put their faith in him and worship him and him alone. It proclaimed this 2,000 years ago and it continues to do so from eternity to eternity he stands. This Jesus we speak about, he is not dead. Unbeliever, if, if by the will of God he's stirring your heart even as we speak, I beg of you, leave what is dead. There's nothing in there. Embrace the living God. Flee idolatry. And now to the believers. Believers, I am blessed. I am blessed through prayers, through friendships, through community. I am blessed to know that there are some among us, even sitting here tonight, who have faced and continue to face the hard reality of drawing the line and saying no. I have seen you make use of God's faithfulness and I have seen you flee from idolatry. I have heard your prayers. Every, every Wednesday before the student Bible study, we prayed together. And this week, if you listened to almost every prayer, you would have heard, Lord, save my family. Lord, use me for the sake of your gospel. Now, <laughs> I have the easy part. My job, if you want to call it a job, my calling, my task at this present moment in life is to preach and teach the Bible. And I do this in a Bible-believing church. Now, that, that's easy. I can say anything, almost anything, and if it's in the Bible, you guys will think I'm doing a good job or a half-decent job. I have many issues and challenges in life, but fleeing from idolatry isn't really one of them. I've booked a week's leave in December and I go home to a family that fears God. That's easy. You, you guys are the heroes. You are the soldiers on the front line 
you have to wake up tomorrow morning and you have to go to a secular job and you have to ask God to guide you in how to hold the line, how to say no, how to share the gospel. Some of you, some of you will go home in December and you go home to families that don't believe in God. Some of them are even directly opposed to your belief in God. You have to say no. You have to open the Bible and find the words to tell the people you love that if their hope is not in Christ, they are living in sin and the wages of sin is death. That's hard. You guys are the heroes. And I pray and I I trust that in his faithfulness, God will grant you the strength to do that. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Let us pray. Lord, you are great. You are majestic. You are holy. You are worthy. Not only are you worthy of praise, you are worthy of all of our praise. God, even as we approach the table in a few minutes' time, may this God that we remember and celebrate May he grasp all of our worship. May he fill our minds. May he be our one desire. Help us, Lord, in each of our different contexts. Help us to live for you and you alone. Lord, I pray especially for those who I know face this difficulty in families. Those who have to say no, those who have to draw the line. Those who are tasked to bring hope to hopeless situations. I pray, Lord, grant them strength, grant them perseverance. Be their portion, and even as they struggle with this task, may they receive this blessing that Jesus spoke. Great is their reward in heaven. Pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.